This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. It is Wednesday, May 12th, 2010, and this is show 26. This is the program where we talk about movies from around the globe. We talk about the good, the bad, and sometimes all of the rest. But first, before we get into that, let me introduce uh, my frequent and regular friend and co-host, Kevin Ma. Kevin, how you doing? Good, good. Hi, Paul. Hi. How are you doing? And we also have a special guest joining us for this episode. Uh, that is the webmaster of lovehongkongfilm.com, uh, Ross Chen. Ross, how are you doing? Hi, Paul. How you doing? I'm, I'm good. All right. You sound tired? Uh, I am tired. Yeah. A little jet lagged still. Yeah. Um, so part of the reason for that jet lag is because you were recently off at the Udine Far East Film Festival. And we're going to talk a little uh, yeah. bit about that today. Um, but before we get into that, um, let's jump into some news really quick. We'll start off with our East Screen news for this week. Um, first, a little bit of news coming from Europe. Yeah, um, a little film festival called Cannes um, opened, I think, just a few hours ago with, uh, sorry, it's not really East Screen, uh, Robin Hood, the film directed by Ridley Scott starring uh, Russell Crowe. Well, he's Australian, so I guess... It kind of counts as e-screen. Anyway, um, so it's kicked off uh, this year. Um, the Asian lineup in competition uh, is relatively weak. I mean, there's some familiar names, such as uh, Takeshi Kitano, uh, his latest film, Outrage. I think we already talked about this. Um, Lee Chan-dong, Poetry. Um, um, what else? Uh, let me look at this list here. Yeah, Im Sang-soo, yeah, Im Sang-soo, Korean director, his remake of the classic 60s film The House Made. Um, so over the next uh, week or two, uh, we should be looking at reviews of these new Asian films, and uh, yeah, we'll keep things updated next shows. All right, and going along with this, you know, the start of cons, uh, one of the little bits of news items we can talk about is that one of the films getting some play over there is uh, last year's Founding of a Republic. Um, I don't know. This didn't really seem like Khan's material to me. Um, Kevin, do you think that this is a this is a been a been a push by the mainland to get get this screened over there? Um, I think it's it's something I guess we're looking at as a representative of what China came up with last year. But it seems like I don't think it's in the festival, is it? I think it's only playing in the the film market, I believe. Oh, so it's not it's not part of the main festival festival curriculum then. Uh, none of the uh, out of competition slots. It's definitely not in competition. Mm. Um, none of the out of competition slot. I think. Showed. I don't think it would have a chance actually. I think. Yeah. Obviously, I thought it was an overlooked film that was totally overlooked by Chinese audiences. So I don't know. Uh, maybe Chinese audiences will have a chance to look at it again now after it's been played in France, and mm. then it will get the recognition it deserves. Well, see, I was kind of curious. I was thinking maybe they were opening a new category like uh, best revisionist history, or you know, <laughs> yeah, something along this line. Yeah. I don't um, know if you could read that whole last two minutes I was speaking was sarcastic. Yeah, but there's some interesting... No, uh, go ahead, Ross. No, I was just saying that isn't it just uh, playing because uh, they probably just want to placate the uh, the mainland? China is the biggest market, mm -hmm. so why not make them happy by showing their most favorite film in the entire universe? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and it's definitely qualifying for, for that title. Uh, according to this article in The Standard, they say that the... The mainland film industry claims that on average one new cinema screen is opened every day. 
and the country's box office takings last year soared to uh, 6.2 billion yuan, which is about uh, Hong Kong seven billion dollars, or um, that comes out to like a billion U.S. dollars, and that's a, a 44% rise, uh, which is is quite substantial. And of course, they've got you know they're, they're comparing it with Avatar. They said, well, Avatar dominated with 1.3 billion yuan. A few local films held their own with the founding of Republic, uh, taking more than 400 million yuan and 12 others breaking the 100 million yuan mark. Of course, they don't, they don't mention any of the, you know, screen closings or any of the um, other things that were sort of circulated around with Avatar going on. Um, but another interesting point they say further in in the article is that the success of the likes of the founding of a republic, a savvy retelling of China's history, savvy, which featured <laughs> an air, array of Chinese film stars, has revealed a rapidly developing commercial filmmaking scene. It's hard to call that film commercial. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was. It, it was like yeah. Yeah. So it's. Uh, it sounds like they're, that this article is kind of sucking up to the film, and in some aspects, because yeah, I would I would question the, the, the commercial aspect of it too. And I think we were talking last week um, w with the piracy issue that you know they had um, they had actually cl you know clamped down on piracy in some of the bigger cities like Beijing and whatnot to give this film uh, more play and sort of help the help the revenue. So I think it's great that they're opening more cinemas, um, you know, but, you know, the, the, the question still remains is who can, you know, can the average person still go and afford to go to those cinemas? That's an issue that they're going to have to really address if they want to keep this trend going. Of course, one thing I think um, these reports never address is how these people were able to watch the movie. Many, many tickets were given away for free. Many organizations bought up showings. So uh, I, I think I think it comes to the will of the individual film goer. Actually, I don't think it will be as high as this box office suggests. <clears throat> but but in but in the truly socialist republic, shouldn't all movies be free? <laughs> well, aren't they already? I mean. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, the second bit of news we can talk about is um, the new Donnie Yen film, Donnie Yen film uh, Chen Zhen, has gotten an uh, October 1st release, which is going to put it in line with a bunch of other uh, films to be opened for, which, you know, that, that's the uh, Chinese National Day. Communist a, Day. Yeah, it's a, it's a big holiday for, for China. And... Um, and more and more Hong Kong films have been getting release dates during this time. I remember a couple of years back, for example, um, what was it? Uh, Jackie Chan's uh, film about the baby. Uh, uh, got, Robbie, Robbie, Hood. Yeah, Robbie Hood, yeah, where they shocked the baby back to life. Uh, <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen it. Um, but that got that was a big uh, October first film, and I guess the big question is: is will this film feature? some level of national nationalism in it and will the other films being released in this time will it be a competition of who can be who can you know sort of present the the best nationalism uh or the best nationalistic message hell i mean the only way they can make that movie more nationalistic i mean chen Zhen, national defense is by naming donnie's character mao it's the only way it could be more nationalistic that whole movie just spells like patriotism mm. nationalism it's 
I mean, Donnie Yen dressed as Kato, flipping around in the battlefield, fighting Japanese evil Japanese soldiers. That that's totally that's a movie made for Communist Day. Huh? I don't know what you guys are talking about. I'm going to go see Huangbo. <laughs> <laughs> Donnie Yen is like third billing for me. It's like Huangbo, Shuchi, and then Donnie. Yeah, well, we forgot you were the president of the Huangbo fan club. Yeah, pretty much. It doesn't matter that it's coming out in on October first because you know, for me, I just take what they give me. It'd be like a Steffi Alex triple feature, and I'd watch them all. Well, I mean, It Man Two didn't really have to have to take on the October first day to to revive people's nationalism. So I don't think it's a matter of opening day, and I think it's almost too too intentional. The po- like it's almost like too intentional. Yeah, I think. This obviously looks like a summer movie, but they're putting out in National Day. It just tells you, obviously, what they're going for. Well, he's got, uh, he's got another film coming, too, um, that uh, I think I also saw on the film Bizasia site. What was that? I mean, sign off for the Alan Mack film, right? Um, uh, yeah, through Arclight. Um, um, Alan Mack, Felix Chong. And it's yeah. going to be called... Another, another period film. Uh, the Lost Bladesman. Okay. <laughs> Um, it is, it's like it is like, like 14, lost 14 blades yeah it's like yeah. 14 blades and then 14, oh, it was a hit. 14 lost bladesmen of the last empress of and, the fist yeah something and donnie <laughs> breakdances really keeping hong kong cinema afloat right now yeah well somebody i think the guy um over at the podcast on fire was he had a twitter saying like he went to one of the uk video stores and the martial arts section was like totally dominated by Donnie Yen. So, I mean, we can we can make fun of the guy, but he is doing a lot to sort of keep local films making stuff. So, um, but I mean, I will say this for the guy: he does have some. He is he's he's getting a lot more Western screen presence. I mean, people recognize him in the West. You know, I I I can mention the name but of only- friends. And they'll they'll know him if if nothing else from things like you know the Highlander movie and and you know some of the stuff that he's done. But they know who he is. They recognize the name. In all seriousness, you know Donnie Yen is. I, I think the, the the talk about him being really arrogant and conceited has been going around for years. Probably even like before he became a real superstar, which actually hasn't really happened until the last four or so years. Before that, he was still a star, but he hadn't really reached the level that he was he is at now. It's almost like Ip Man really put him over the top. So, you know, all fairness to him, you know, he's he's riding a wave and he's doing a really good job of it. And uh, we should be happy that he's continuing to make movies because it does maintain, it does create a certain interest. People are really, really yeah. excited to see him now. He holds the position that Jet Li used to hold pretty much.
All right, it's time to move on. We're going to talk about uh, some DVD picks this week since we haven't had any new films in the last week to talk about. So for East Screen this week, the DVD pick of choice is Yatterman. And now I talked a little bit about this uh, when it was playing in the film festival. And Kevin, you've seen this film, haven't you? Yeah, I, I saw it with a lot of enthusiastic uh, Arashi fans. Yeah, but, uh, I remember you were twittering uh, some that, that some of them were a bit over enthusiastic. Um, um, uh, uh, there's one little anecdote is that when they saw the because the, the star of the film was Sho Sakurai, that's his name. When they saw the logo for the film company called Shochiku, they laughed. Mm. That's that's how 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 far they went. Yeah. Now, Ross, have you seen this film? Uh, actually, uh, I saw it in Udine last year. There's a closing film mm. of the 11th uh, Far East Film Festival. Okay. Well, the film's recently been released on uh, DVD through uh, Panorama. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about the DVD itself. Unfortunately, it doesn't have any spe special features. It's a, it's a single disc release, um, but it's reasonably priced when compared with the Japanese, the original Japanese disc, which is a you can get as a three disc set, but that runs that's going to run upwards of fifty dollars or more, and that one does not have English subtitles. Um, so this is a region three disc NTSC, but if you can get a hold of it, it does have English subtitles. Um, so it's it's good if you're just looking to to see the film. If you're looking for the special features there, you're going to be somewhat disappointed. Um, so for those who don't know what this film is about you kind of have to go back in time. This is actually an anime title that came out in the 19, late 1970s um, for a very long-running sort of Saturday TV show. Um, in, in a way, it's kind of similar to some of, the, some of the elements that you would see in Pokemon, if you've ever seen an episode of Pokemon. Um, but it's basically the story of uh, two, two individuals who work in a toy shop and... Uh, when when evil abounds, they basically transform themselves um, into Yatterman, which is this, this crime-fighting duo. Um, so it's got lots of very familiar elements for people who've seen things like Sailor Moon, um, or as I mentioned, Pokemon, or some of the other anime that come come along with that kind of a style. And so this is a live-action version of that, and directed by uh, Takeshi Miike. And it's a very fun film. If, if, if you've seen uh, some of the live-action films that have come out recently, um, the one that comes to my mind, for example, is Cutie Honey. It's that sort of tongue-in-cheek humor that's present here. Um, the story is really... It's not, not a whole... Not very in-depth. It's basically the good guys fighting against this team of bad guys. Um, it's, a, it's a trio of... Uh, led by... Uh, Kuoku Fukada, who goes by the name of, oh, I lost her name, uh, Doranjo. Doranjo. Yeah, she is the female boss, and she has two sidekicks, Boyaki and Tanzra. And so <clears throat> the, the three of them are always involved in a weekly plot with some type of giant mech to, you know, do bad deeds. And it's always the Yatterman team who stops them. And because they're toy makers, the Yatterman team has, they have a variety of giant robot toys uh, at their disposal to thwart the bad guys. So if you haven't seen the anime, the film itself could be a little bit strange to kind of watch because the, the story actually sort of jumps off uh, right in the middle of a battle and you're not really sure what's going on. 
and it sort of goes into some of the exposition from there. So for for fans who've seen the show, either the, the original 70s show, they had a, a remake, uh, an anime remake of the series or a reboot of the series a few years back. Um, if you haven't seen those, it takes a while to sort of get into it and sort of understand what's going on. Uh, the great thing about this, though, is that it, it has the look and feel of, of anime, um, which very few films, live-action films, have really been able to achieve. I mean, you can look at, uh, I think, the, the biggest Hong Kong examples, a film like City Hunter or Future Cops, for example, um, often come off as a, as a little bit laughable in their attempts to sort of get that feel. Um, it's, it's sort of a hard, a hard thing to achieve with live action, but I think that the director really has sort of captured that here. But he also goes as far as to actually poke fun at a lot of the uh, of the genre. Um, so, for example, there there are some there are some dialogue gags where he said has characters saying, "Oh, how come every how come we have to do this every week at six thirty on Saturday?" Which was, I guess, the original time slot of the television show as it aired in Japan. So, in in some ways, they're they're often breaking that fourth wall, or they're they're doing a lot of self reference. Uh, in the in the gags and that may be that may make it a little bit sort of out of bounds for viewers who are not that into anime or who are not familiar with the series um, but it's it's just a fun film if you like Japanese film at all it's it's fairly you know light and fluffy you don't really have to worry about plot too much there is a little bit of a romance involved and you know there's an otherworldly bad guy who sort of comes in a bit later um, but it's very tongue-in-cheek, and it's it's something fun. And if you can get the um, the cheaper version of the DVD, I think it's definitely worth the money if you're into anime at all. Um, Kevin, you saw this in the theater. What are some of your thoughts on it? Um, I think it's Mika's uh, most commercial film. Um, but I don't mean in terms of uh, for people who who are fans of, say, Ichi the Killer or Audition. They're going to watch this and be like, what? It's, it's very... Pe- um, I would say this: the gags are not very family friendly, but the film itself, if it didn't have these really strange uh, innuendo, it would be very, very clean film. Without- I was gonna say it's got a lot of uh, of uh, of uh, sexual humor, which ironically yeah. is pretty much it was there in the cartoon. It's just no one thinks about it because it was animated. Yeah, right, right. But um, it, but yeah, I think I think you're right, Paul. That uh, people, it would be very odd to those who aren't familiar with with I guess the entire genre of these kind of shows um if you if you're an asian child and you grew up in asia you watch these kind of animation every week and this whole format would seem very familiar to you so i think that's that's where the what i where i mean by uh, Mika's most commercial film but for me I thought it was fun and that the only way it would make sense for me is that you know that Mika had to be making fun of the genre you know he wasn't taking the film really seriously um and i think that's where the fun is if you don't. It's it's kind of a tiresome film because the structure sort of repeats itself several times and it gets kind of tiresome. But if you can pick up on the little little gags that that Mika throws in, and and we can, and I think uh, many men will 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 appreciate Kyoko Fukada's performance as I did. Um, they will find something to enjoy. But yeah, I think for people for for Western audiences who aren't really familiar with this genre or this 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 whole idea, the anime, the superhero anime, I think they might they might be a little lost. I think while watching the film. Yeah, and 
I would definitely recommend if you could get somehow get a hold of the animation. Um, I don't think it's available in the states, but you may be able to find it at you know through festival circuits or con you know comic book conventions um, to try and try and get a hold of and watch some of the uh, anime before actually seeing this because some of some of the some of the the ways that the hero you know for example the heroes have a big robot it's like half half dog. Um, you know, half tank, um, who, who's called Yadirwan and basically every fight goes the same way. He, he starts fighting against the giant, you know, enemy robot of some sort, and he ends up losing halfway through the fight until, uh, the, the Yatterman one, who's the male protagonist can throw him, uh, a mechanical magical bone. And once he eats the bone, he sort of becomes, you know, uh, supersized and he gets his power back and he goes on to defeat the, the enemy robot. Um, and it, it, as Kevin was saying, it's very repetitive in, in that that's sort of how the battles continuously take place. And that's how they work in the cartoon. So again, he's, the director is very much poking fun at a lot of the repetition that would happen in these, in these episodic serials from week to week. Um, and the, and a lot of the dialogue is making reference to that too. Actually, I wouldn't even have to, I wouldn't even um, try and recommend people to just watch the anime. I think they just have to watch anything with uh, any Japanese animation with superheroes. I mean, yeah, like I mean, if Matt you've Spider, seen if you've seen Ultraman. if you've seen uh, Pokemon, for example, the Team Rocket um, is 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 you know sort of the three the three enemies that make up Team Rocket. I, I think that that's what they're called in the U.S. version. I'm not sure about the if that's the same in the Japanese original Japanese, but it's that same dynamic that's here for, for, you know, the, the enemies, Kyoko Fukada and her two cronies. Yeah, except um, with a lot more sexual tension. Yeah. And if you, if you're a video gamer I don't know, at all, Team Rocket's pretty sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Especially um, with the cat. Yeah. The cat, the cat, cat really makes the trio. Um, but if you're a video game, if you play video games at all, I think that, um, it's, is it, uh, Capcom, the, the Capcom game Sunoco versus Capcom, uh, it's a fighting game which was recently released earlier this year. Um, they make the the, the Yatterman characters make an appearance as as playable characters in that game. Um, so yeah, you, you you may recognize them from the uniforms if you've played that game at all. But uh, uh, Ross, uh, what what did you think of the film? You saw it a, over a year ago, so actually, I just bought the Blu-ray. Like like a, like an idiot, <laughs> but um, uh, the Blu-ray actually is kind of soft, so it's not. It's still a lot better than DVD. But is uh, the now not, is that the is that the Panorama? Is that released through yeah, Panorama yeah. as well? So a Hong Kong release. No special features on that at all, or I don't know. I just threw it in and gave it a spin. So you know, I just noticed that it was a little softer than I probably would have expected. But you know, I'm not gonna complain. The price is right. Yeah. Um, it's it's just fun. You know, it's 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 not recommended for everybody. It's just impossible. You know, I, I'm sure it taxed a lot of people. I met a lot of people last year who were just like, "Oh, what the hell was that?" <laughs> but you know, um, the it's it, it's it's pretty much for fans. It's meant to be silly. If you can enjoy silly stuff, and you know, basically you can can handle the jokes and you're in on it, and you can just roll with it, then it's yeah, it's a lot of fun. I like it, but yeah, it, it's it's a little too long. It's an hour and fifty minutes. Yeah, my God, an hour and fifty minutes of that is 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 tough. But, um, especially with all the repetition, like you said. Um, but uh, it, it's a fun little movie.
All right, let's move on to talk about some West Screen news. Um, this first bit of news that we'll talk about uh, may have some people a little, little bit worried in with regard to some upcoming technology, and this is uh, some legislation that's being pushed by movie studios. So basically, um, the FCC has uh, given the go-ahead for um, big Hollywood firms to put on restrictions on consumer set-top boxes to block certain television programs or certain films from screening. Um, you know, and obviously if you're somebody who doesn't really like this kind of censorship talk or, or like this kind of control, you would immediately be getting visions of, you know, some, some kind of Decepticon coming alive in your television and taking control of the thing. Um, but what they're saying is that basically it would allow these companies to block the outputs, the signal outputs, for a period for a given title for a period of upwards of ninety days, and they're looking at doing this to sort of control the flow of piracy, and to control the access to certain content. So, if for example they were going to have a digital download screening of Avatar, I could pay for it, sort of like pay per view. Um, I could perhaps get my DVR to capture it if I wasn't going to be home, but then I could not give a copy of that to my friend because he would not have the access to it. His TV wouldn't recognize the access to it, and it would block it unless he paid for it to open up the access somehow. I guess that's my basic understanding of how the technology would work, but I'm sure this is going to be very controversial for a lot of people. Um, now, Kevin and Ross, you, you guys... Um, both uh, spend time in the U.S., and um, I imagine that you probably have still have friends there. What, what, what are your thoughts on this this type of ruling, this type of potential technology? Well, everyone I know lives by their TiVo, so, but they don't. Yeah, you know, I, I really this type of thing is not surprising. Um, it's hard to say where it's going to lead, but you know, it, it's just it's just the way it goes for a lot of these. Uh, a lot of the big studios, a lot of the uh, the big companies, they just want to extend their model. The model is control. Uh, you know, it's it's basically at a certain point they should be trying to spread things out, give everything, um, put everything out there as soon as possible for people to get, instead of trying to make it harder for people to get it. But you know, they don't do that. It's because you know, the only way they can uh, maintain that revenue is to kind of keep it to themselves. It's. Uh, it's just it's it's just it's just expected that they just be looking for new ways to control it. It's like um it's like DRM for uh for downloads online. Yeah. Like when you get yeah. the digital copy off your uh your DVD or your Blu-ray, they make it so hard to unlock. You only use it on your computer. You can't put it on your on your portable system, or you can try to, but it's hell. It looks like you know, a rainbow or something. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's just it's just you know they just look for ways to control it, but. The internet shows that that control is just not working. I, I think the problem is that people tend to abuse what they have. I um, mean, people, when they get a DVD, they upload it to people and they upload it to 200 people, 300 people, whatever. When, you know, I mean, it's not a big deal. You lend it to a friend or something and then, you know, them watch it. it. To me, it's no big deal, but people tend to abuse that right. And then, the, you know, the few people who abuse it makes it worse for all of us. No, I was going to say, I really didn't, I really never understood that mentality. 
of, you know, I just bought a DVD. I'm going to put it online for a thousand people. You know, I mean, I just never got that. Well, I guess in, in some ways it's, you know, uh, it's, it's a type of socialization. Yeah, it's a type of, you know, uh, getting people to come to your site, you know, showing that you're good at something. You know, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of like the hacker mentality. You're not doing something really to, you know, make an income off it or to do anything else other than sort of make a name for yourself. I think that was sort of, you know, the, the case behind the, the local guy who got prosecuted uh, was the, the, the BitTorrent king, as he <laughs> was called. But I look at technology like this and... You know, you you can look at failed models. Like I don't, I don't know how many people out there listening might remember Divix, right? But when when DVDs were first coming out, um, they, they had this Divix model, and now most people would recognize Divix. I mean, if you're if you're probably 20 years, you know, or a teenager, and you understand Divix, you understand it as this encoder, this form of encoding that you can use to play media files on your computer, and you have to have the current, and you know, the current codec to be able to view it successfully. But in the early days, DivX was a technology that was specifically being applied to these set-top boxes that basically gave you a limited run, uh, a limited number of viewings on uh, certain disks. And ultimately, the studios sort of broke away from that because they weren't going to make, you know, they weren't making money off it. And, you know, people were going wanted to go for DVDs because it didn't have that sense of control. So I look at things like this and I'm, I'm not sure people are going to buy into that technology, that people are just going to go elsewhere and that ultimately it's going to go the, you know, may end up by the roadside. Uh, I think people get turned off by aspects of that. And I'm not really saying that from a, from a standpoint of right or wrong. It's just that some people, like when you buy something, you don't want to be dictated. I know that with, with the Kindle, for example, a lot of people have been finding out that with the the so-called ebooks that like Amazon has some has some books which you can only put on two or three of your devices and other books will be on you're allowed to put on five or seven of your devices but they're very you know they're very concerned about that limit that they feel that when they buy something they want to have sort of unlimited access to it Right, exactly what I want to do with my CDs. I mean, I want to, I want to maybe put something on my I, 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 that I rip myself on my MPV player. I'm not giving it away, but when I buy something, it feels like the companies, the corporations, are automatically assuming that I'll do it, and it's it's just ridiculous. It makes me not want to buy it. That's, I mean, that's the whole thing about Divix and the whole thing about using iTunes for a while. I didn't want to use iTunes. I didn't want to download music legally because of the DRM. Yeah, and. And I think this, the same thing is going to happen. And ultimately what happened, I mean, iTunes lifted the DRM from, right. from their music. So um, they, they sort of went along with the, the, the pressure of the public who were saying, we don't really like this, this model compared with what other companies are doing. So I think there may be some companies that come up and sort of challenge this model. And again, I think Ross was, was kind of pointing to the fact that where we don't really know where people are going to be looking for their entertainment in the next decade or so. I think more and more people are going to be going to things like Hulu and, uh, you know, Netflix and, and other forms that are coming right through the computer. And a standard television may not be, you know, the, the, the frame in which we're receiving a lot of these entertainment forms anymore. Well, you know what? I can't, I can't access Hulu here. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's an issue. You know, both Hulu yeah. and Netflix and... You know, um, like even on my Xbox, I can't get access to Netflix or some of the the rented movies because of the 
the international regulations, which is really weird because I can, I can get access to, I can rent movies from iTunes because I have a U.S. credit card, but it, you have to get an IP blocker or some other f sort of software workaround if you want to view stuff that's available freely in another country. And I think hopefully within the next decade, a lot of that stuff will start to get worked out. Yeah, but see, that's that's the thing that uh, that they can't get around. I mean, you know, everyone still wants to sell territorial rights. I'll look for ways to control that. The internet makes everything closer. You can't. Uh, everyone's talking about the the latest Donnie Yen film five months before it comes out, but they're talking about it in the states and the UK. Yeah, it's just silly. It used to be that people would only talk about this thing after it was on DVD. Yeah. So it's it's just so accelerated now. So creating these artificial windows and ways to block people from getting content early doesn't make sense. But, you know, what happens? I mean, right now in Cannes, you have a, a gigantic uh, a film market. You know, people watching films to buy them for theatrical and video distribution in other parts of the world. But this model is the model that the Internet defeats. All right, our next bit of news, a uh, little bit of uh, <clears throat> comic book geekery for those comic book fans out there. Um, Judge Dredd is a so somewhat somewhat famous comic book character from the States. And some of you may remember that uh, there was a film version made with uh, Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, some years back, and it was pretty much hailed as a failure by fans of the comic book. And um, if you've seen it, you would probably agree, if whether you've, whether you've read the comic book or not, that it was not a very good film. So the film... It's only the greatest Stallone film ever made. <laughs> Unfortunately, I did not watch it, so you, you can you, like. Uh, you you've never huh? seen you've never seen Judge Dredd. No, I never saw Judge Dredd. I guess I have to turn in my uh, uh, my official geek card or something, my membership card to the Geek Society that I never watched Judge Dredd. I mean, like you know, Sylvester Stallone and Rob Schneider together. I mean, yeah. come on. I saw knockoff. That was bad enough. <laughs> it has the best Van Stallone Dan opening Dan line ever. Yeah. Well, what is huh? that line, Kevin? I am the law. Yeah, yeah that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I thought I had um, enough trailers. Yeah, it's... actually, um, Judge Dredd is a UK comic. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. It's a UK comic. Uh, my apologies to the UK. Sadly, um, <laughs> I knew that. How did I know? I yeah. Know. But anyway, the film is going to be remade. It's getting financing, and uh, it looks like they're trying to shoot for a, a 3D picture. Um, of course, everything's going you know, 3D these days, and they're tapping Michael Murphy as a co-producer who worked on District 9, and they don't really, they don't really list anything as with regard to um, casting yet, but they do mention that the 1995 film directed by Danny Cannon starred Sylvester Stallone, Armand Asante, and <laughs> Rob Schneider, and pretty much forgettable. Um, Rob but... Schneider, who is partially Asian, <laughs> he's partially Asian, so you know somehow <laughs> that fits. Is that a redeeming trait? I mean, that makes it well, relevant to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Part East Green, part West Green. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, uh, I think that if if you've ever seen the Judge Dredd comic, it's it's very stylized and and that was something that they just weren't able to capture with the original Stallone film. And hopefully, if this gets the production value and and you know good um good production support behind it they'll actually be able to pull it off in in quite a nice way um so i'm a little bit excited for this i don't know what do you think kevin 
something you I want don't to know. I mean the first the first film was was it, it was a, a interesting attempt. It was a rated R comic book film. Um, a little rare these days, I guess. Um, although it was actually aiming for PG thirteen at the time. Um, it had a bigger budget than I guess what Stallone chart uh, makes. What the movie that Stallone makes now. Um, um, I thought in the movie. Let's let's face it. I mean, all the stuff I said, how good it was. It was sarcastic. It's not a very good movie. But um, it was. I think the production design and and it had a big enough budget that. I because I read about the budget in the news report, it's only forty five million dollars. Even that's only half. I think half the budget of the of the first film. Mm. So how do you make something this ambitious with a lower budget? It all depends on what kind of cast they get, what kind of imagination, what what kind of visuals they go with. But I don't know. Just I think it's a good comic book idea, but it just really depends on on how good the the people behind the scenes are. Let's move on to talk about our West screen West screen pick for this week. Um, Kevin, you've got a film uh, is on DVD. I think you want to talk about. Is it on DVD? Yes, yes, uh, it's on American France. Is that correct? Yes, coming from France. Uh, this is a film that I saw last year at the 2009 Hong Kong International Film Festival called uh, 35 Shots of Rum." It's by uh, director Claire Denis. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right because I don't know French. Um, it's a very quiet film. Um, it's a film that was very much overlooked by even the screening I went to was barely half full. Um, well, probably because it was at 10 a.m. But anyway, um, it's a very quiet film. It's about family and it's not really a typical, I guess, French film one might, that one might expect. Um, it is not a commercial film, nor is it, I would call it, art film. It's Cut somewhere in the middle, and it shows um, a working class family in Paris. So that's it doesn't really offer the same kind of imagery you might usually watch in a French film, you know, um, uh, Eiffel Tower and and all that stuff. Uh, it's about uh, people in the apartment. Uh, the main character is a father and daughter. The father is a he's a transit engineer. It means he's uh, I guess he, he he conducts subway trains in Paris, and he lives with his daughter. Um, in a small apartment in Paris. Uh, his daughter, I think it's a professor or teacher of some kind. Um, and and the father is also in kind of an on and off affair with a taxi driver. Um, uh, but then he's, he's kind of the, 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 the hard to approach kind of man. So it's really impossible to, for them to really have a relationship. Uh, meanwhile, the daughter sort of picks that up uh, from, his, from her dad and has this sort of, uh, platonic friendship with a neighbor upstairs, but it's obvious that they like each other, but they that but but nothing happens. Uh, so it's kind of a, a subtle film. It is a quiet film. It's about how these these four people uh, form this 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 family unit. Um, but also there's romantic tensions between between several people. And there's a very brilliant scene in the middle where um, these four people end up in a bar um, in the middle of a rainstorm and. And the whole scene has no dialogue, and it just uh, takes place with the song. I think "Night Shift." I think it's from the '80s. Um, it's on those easy listening radio, American radio stations all the time. Um, and it just you, you just watch these characters interact without any dialogue, and it's a very brilliant um, but very subtle sequence. And you just feel for these people. You just slowly feel for these people, and you slowly get to know them. 
and and um, a lot of people have have compared this film with Ozu, and I would see where the parallels are. It's about the father trying to the father and daughter relationship is very much like an Ozu film without the the you know the aesthetics, uh, the the typical Ozu aesthetics or the black and white or I guess the Japanese. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very quiet film, and I liked it a lot. And it's not a film that sort of screams for award attention, but um, and it's not a it's not a very dark film. It's just you just see these people's lives, and and some people may not like like it. I don't think it's a film for everyone, but no film ever is. But um, I think it's it's a film that would that would be a lot more appreciated if if it got more attention. Uh, so now it came. It just recently came out on video in America. Uh, it's been sold on Amazon, um, and I think it's already come out on video in in England and probably France. So if you have a chance, uh, try and pick up uh, this film, Thirty Five Shots of Rum, and uh, I think you won't regret it. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Let's move on to our special topic for this week. And since we have our our guest here with us, uh, Ross, who was at the Udine Far East Film Festival, um, just recently returning. Um, Ross, you want to give us some of your thoughts on the festival itself? Some of your experiences there? Oh, this is this is the third year I've gone in a row. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's a special festival. I feel that way about it. You know, I mean, I'm not a big fest guy anyway. You don't see me going to like Busan or Tokyo. Um, they'd be kind of cool to go to, but you know, I understand the lines of hell and it's just a mad rush everywhere. Hong Kong, the Hong Kong International Film Festival is like that too in its own way. I think that's one reason why I like Udine. Udine is very, it's small, um, but they show a lot of great films. Um, it's very specialized and it's very relaxed. There's really only two screens and not much stuff really crosses over. You don't really have to miss a lot if you don't want to, except for possibly sleep and food. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a place where you really feel people love Asian films. Yeah. It's hard to describe, you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you, it, how, can, how can I describe it? You know, they, you see films in uh, the Teatro, which is like this, it's a converted opera house just for the week. So it's like a four-level, you know, opera house where you watch films. The screen is huge. The audiences are, are amazingly uh, uh, polite and enthusiastic. Um, there are people who go to this festival who don't really keep up. They're not like us. They don't like read the internet to find out what the hottest thing is and like salivate over Donnie. But um, they're familiar enough because they go to the fest every year and they depend on the fest to kind of give them this window into Asian cinema every year. And they just go and they watch tons of films. And And the thing is, there is a certain... I don't know what the right word is. Maybe innocence to how they approach Asian film. It's not cynical. It's not about consumption. It's just about um, enjoying something that is given to you. Uh, and they trust the people who bring the films to them, and they vote on which ones they like the most. And, and you know, it, it's a unique it, spirit that you don't see elsewhere. It's like, it's like a community in a way, mm-hmm. the way that festivals run, the way that people are. It's interesting. Um, you said they only, have, they only have two screens, which is really a big contrast from sort of the, for example, the Hong Kong International Film Festival, which has dozen screens scattered all over the place and, you know, forcing people to sort of rush from one venue to the next to try and sometimes make yeah, this, appropriate screenings. 
Um, this year, the, the, the two screenings, one of them, I mean, the two screens, one of them is the Visionario. The Visionario is actually where the, uh, um, where uh, year-round they run the screenings. The same organization runs the screenings. Mm. Um, uh, but uh, the Visionario usually shows the retrospectives. This year they had uh, two showing. They had um, the Shin uh, Toho films, mm. a lot of Japanese sex, violence, nudity films uh, from the uh, 70s. And so people, actually, I didn't catch a single one, sorry. Um, and they had the Long Kong retrospective, which is the one I attended. I caught five of his seven films there. Um, and then the main theater, you have uh, all the, the newer films. There are some of the retrospective ones also shown there, too. They showed a story of the, of the discharged prisoner, the uh, famous uh, Long Kong film that uh, inspired John Woo's Better Tomorrow. They showed that in that theater. And, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see films in that theater on mm-hmm. that screen with uh, such a large audience, an appreciative audience. Now, what, what kind of uh, audience do they, do they, does the whole festival attract? I mean, European audience, Italian audience, or? Italian, a lot of people are local. Um, you know, there, there are people who come from neighboring countries, but, you know, it really is a local thing. It really, it really feels that way. Um, there's a lot of media, too, um, <clears throat> but mostly media, no. It's, it's mostly just, uh, you know, it's mostly just for the people there. Um, no, when, you're not attracted. when, um, but, when Hong Kong is is running the film festival here, one of the things they have sort of uh, going along with it usually just before is uh, Hong Kong Film Art, which is where all sort of the business and negotiating and and the meetings and discussions take place for the business aspect of the film industry. Um, does any of that go on there, or is it is it strictly you know sort of film appreciation? There is some industry happening there. Um, this year, there was, well, last year, there was something called Ties That Bind. It was a, uh, a series of seminars um, about cooperation between um, uh, East and West film companies, uh, production, um, working with the uh, Eastern film companies. Um, this year, they had a sequel to that, and it runs largely concurrently with the fest. Uh, I do not attend because... I am not a production person. I don't know the first thing about it. I just watch movies. So, um, yeah, that, there's something like that that happens there. Um, last year, Patrick Frader went. Uh, he was not there this year. Um, and, uh, you know, some producers attend. Uh, a lot of that goes on. And then you have people from attending from other fests to check out films for their own fests. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not like a film art at all. But, you know, I'm sure something like that could happen from there. But it's just, you know, I see something and I want to get it and I just happen to be an acquisition. Some video labels have some people before. I didn't see any this year, but last year there were quite a few. Mm. What, do you, what, what is your general impression of um, how, how a, you know, especially some of the more contemporary films? Um, I know that, you know, film buffs will tend to like retrospectives and things. But for some of the newer films that were screening this time, what do you think was some of the reception for some of the things being screened? Was it generally positive, or is there a sense that uh, there's a decline in Asian cinema? Uh, from, an, from the audience, I don't get that. Um, I thought this lineup, this year's lineup was very strong, actually. Um, my experience, personally, is always, was always the, the first year was always the best, because then I had seen the fewest films. This year, I went, I'd seen like so many already because of other fests and so on that, that it was hard for me to see things that were new. But, you know, as far as audience reaction is concerned, there, you know, people are still enthusiastic. Um, all the audience, the audience award went to Castaway on the Moon. I did not see the film there. So 
all the all the films that were really popular with the audience, I wasn't even in the in the theater mm. because I'd either seen it already or I was like at dinner or something. So um, I didn't. I wasn't there for some of like the probably the the best reception, uh, best receptions to films. Um, previous years I've been there and people cheer and they clap, and they really really enjoy what they see. Um, you know, it, it's it's like it's like a fest audience that everyone wants to go see. You know, where you you want to experience it with the fest audience. Just like HKIFF, you see some films that people are really, really enthusiastic. It's like, it's like you know when you really first got interested in Asian film, and wherever you were from, um, it, you get that feeling when you're there. Nowadays, you know that feeling is not easy to come by. Yeah. So much about watching Asian film is like trying to catch the hot new thing, or keeping up with the news, or or what people talk about online. It's it's kind of you know, it's a little tiring in a way because mm. um, you always want to know what other people are talking about and you know what is hot it's not it's but you know when you first started you didn't pay attention to that stuff you were just going to the cinema you read the synopsis you read the blurb you did a little research and then you went to see what you were going to see um that's that's what it feels like there it feels like that's what people go um when i'm there it feels like that's why i go i just check things out because i read the catalog and i hadn't heard about it i go eh, why not and i go and sometimes i'm really surprised and sometimes i'm you know i'm not but um, the feeling is always the same that, you know, I'm, I'm taking a chance on movies that are recommended to me by someone who took the time to, sh- to decide on them. And, um, it's just a really wonderful feeling to be there. Hmm. Now there's one thing specifically I want to ask about the festival. You were at the, uh, world premiere of Pano Chan's Dream Home, right? Um, yeah. it was quite, it was quite, uh, well known for, uh, causing someone to faint. Can you talk a little bit about the reception of Dream Home? Over there, the reception. Yeah, how how people I, how people reacted to the film. Um, you're asking me if the audience liked it. Yeah, I guess I guess in general, I guess the the audience reception was it really as strong as some of the media has been kind of hyping here. Um, yeah, actually, absolutely. But you know, like I said, it's a very polite, very enthusiastic audience. Pango Chung was there. They're not going to boo him. <laughs> but no, and you actually, Pango Chung is like a friend of the festival. He's been there like five times. And, uh, yeah, I think he won his first award there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, he's he's been there a lot, and uh, he really appreciates uh, the festival, and the festival really appreciates him. You know, the thing about Dream Home is, and I think hopefully, you know, a lot of people who watch the film, both there and here, will get it. Is that you know, even if it's not that great a film, it's a film by someone who really cares about film, who really isn't just trying to make a product, who really is trying to do things his own way. Maybe it's not always successful, but it's 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 definitely. Uh, there's thought and effort in it. And I think people can appreciate that when they're there. You know, he's there to show them his film and he's not being pretentious about it. He's just telling them what he thought when he made it. And, um, you know, that, that appreciation of film, it, it feels different from other places, from other fests. You know, no one, it's not like, I don't get the sense at Udine that as soon as things happen, people are running off to their Twitter or their blog to tell everyone else what happened. You know, that happens at other fests. I'm sure you know that. Happens on my you know, Twitter, so. Actually, probably I was the number one Twitter, which is really sad. It happens after movie night for us. I mean, come on. Yeah. Huh? It happens after movie yeah, night for us. Twitter, like mad. <laughs> it's a place to go if you really like movies, you know. And that, that's that's the thing that I I don't I don't experience it at other fests. So, you know, I'm happy to go every year. I'm actually ex- exceptionally blessed to go every year because you know I get to hang out with the uh, directors and other staff members and you know. Uh, other critics and we get to talk about films and eat gelato and 
and cool stuff like that. So let me put it this way. This is a fest where Chapman So can take a nap in the lobby of the theater and no one bothers him. <laughs> he cannot do that in Hong Kong. <laughs> well, it doesn't help that he's like so, on, on, you know, the radio here every day and then has, has a primetime sitcom on in the evenings. So now, did you get to see um, Ip Man while you were there? It meant to, yes. Yeah, it meant to. What was the... It was the closing film. As, as we, because uh, as we were talking about last week, um, you know, that that film has a very strong sense of nationalism and it's using it's using a little bit of racism as, as sort of the uh, point of contention to achieve that. How, how do you think that film was seen um, by the international audience? Were they as equally receptive to those ideas and those themes? Was it just seen as camp or what, what, what do you think? Well, actually, well, the thing about Hitman 2 is actually it placed very high in the audience voting. Within top, uh, within top ten, top five, even probably, it wasn't in the top three. Like uh, the one of the audience award was Castaway on the Moon, um, um, but yeah, so no Hong Kong in the top three. But uh, It Man was way up there. It Man too, and you know the audience cheered. They cheered twice during the film. Once they cheered during the the tabletop duel um, between Donnie and Sam. Yeah, that was you remember great, that? that was a great scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they went wild there. The second time they cheered though, was during the massive beatdown on Mr. Twister, which mm. was a smaller cheer. And actually, I was not one of the people cheering at that moment. <laughs> um, it, it, I think, you know, and this is especially true for Asian films in the West, you know, there's some separation. You can separate yourself sometimes from this type of politics and this type of, you know, well, you know, this type of racism, if you want to really put it that way. I mean, I would put it that way, but, you know, I'm not going to walk around telling people that it's the most racist film ever. Um, but I think you can separate yourself somewhat because you know they're not going to get it sometimes in Asia how how to present things globally. Just like in America, they're going to make Transformers too with the twins, which is yeah. sad because everything's American there. But anyway, um, the thing is, yeah, they, they're not. Uh, I think they can separate themselves. They do it for the kung fu. They do it for the uh, you know the Rocky Four storyline. I, I think we're a little more sensitive to those things over here. Yeah, and I think we should be sensitive to them as people who, you know, are more than just film watchers. Film watchers, I think, you know, aren't held to as much, quote-unquote, responsibility as the people who actually walk around telling people about films. This is just my opinion. You can free to disagree with me if you wish, and I'm sure many people do. But if someone's going to go out there and be an authority and, and pretend to be an authority or claim to be one and say, hey, this is this film, this is what's going on, this is what it's about, I think you should address this issue. Mm-hmm. You should uh, I think that's interesting, because me and you are the, I think we're the only people who kind of see um, this, this thing being dangerous. I mean, I think, I don't think, I think Paul last week, you said you kind of um, uh, downplay a little bit and uh, in, in private conversations, we talk to other, other Caucasian friends and they don't make such a big deal, but it seems like only me and Ross uh, seems to, I guess, see this. Is this, is this well, is, do you think it's true? Well, I haven't published a review about Hitman 2 yet, but it's done and it'll probably go up in a couple of days. But to me, it's not like I say you can't enjoy the film. You can enjoy it for the action. You can enjoy it for Donnie Yen, who actually is quite good in the film. And you can enjoy just, you know, the whole, uh, the, you can enjoy the, the underdog fight sequence. You can enjoy him beating Mr. Twister on that level. The, the part where it becomes disturbing is when, you, is when you think about how this film basically taps into the most base xenophobia of Chinese people to get them to spend money 
you know, and and cheer like, ultimately, hey. yeah, mm-hmm. and cheer ultimately, yes. It, it's not getting them to cheer for something that is universal. It's getting them to cheer for something that they feel, and that is this whole, you know, anti-Western, you know, uh, uh, um, this 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 whole anti-Western um, sentiment. It's getting it's getting them to to, you know, it's it's preying on this type of feeling. You know, you know, people feel it. But, you know, there's a period of time where people are not so happy to talk about it because they know maybe it's wrong to be so damn racist or uh, or xenophobic or or to put you know other cultures into this little window this little box where you can say that they're this way and that's the only way you portray them as but you know a movie like that tells you hey it's okay now, now back to the back to i guess the festival focus why why didn't why didn't you think the the people the italian audience in, in italy felt felt that or you saw know, that? i'll bet you there are people who felt it but I think they are not people who were going to run around frothing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll go on record saying that you know I don't dislike the film. I think it's fun, but you really have to look past it. I think it's dangerous in a way, but not in terms of just Hitman Two is a dangerous film. It's more like the trend that it represents is dangerous. Because you know, already we have Chenden coming out, and he's going to be fighting Japanese. What's next? I mean, is, does every kung fu film have to have Donnie Yen fighting some other culture? Just to make Chinese people happy. So some of the some of the people we were talking to, and we talked about this last week too. I'd like to get your thoughts on this. We're saying, you know, a lot of people when they look at a film, you know, a Hollywood film like Spider Man or Iron Man, and recently we had Iron Man two, you know, and they see these characters in front of the the, the U.S. flag and stuff. That that too is sort of a sense of over the top nationalism. What do you think about that, Ross? Well, you know, I just saw Toy Story two last week. 3D, and you know there's a scene in the U.S. where uh, Buzz is in front of a, an American flag, mm. but in the international version, it's a globe. Hmm. So they they changed so it specifically. Speech, for, huh? They changed it specifically for the international release. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's an American flag behind him if you watch in the states, but in the but you know internationally, the one I saw here because I'm in Hong Kong is a globe behind him. Hmm. Interesting. Even though they're playing. Like you know, a really an American anthem. So, so you know, I think you know people are used to America being this way in their films, like mm-hmm. in Spider-Man, for example. They were really bad in Spider-Man Three. I remember that scene. Um, and but you know now people are very very conscious of it. They they're afraid to do it because they know that America is not viewed as positive as they once were. That's the whole reason it took them this this long to make Captain America. They're afraid of how to how to frame it. Yeah. They need like three films to lead up to Captain America just so people will, will actually go. <laughs> and now they have to send it in the 50s too to make it seem in, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not out of context. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. So yeah, they have to do it that way. Um, it's all very smart, but you know, I mean, this nationalism, maybe it's the same thing in a way. We'll have to wait and see if, uh, if um, you know, Iron Man 3, uh, I've heard some rumors floating out there that they may break out the Mandarin as the villain, and that could open up a whole new can of worms. So it just depends on how they portray him. Yeah, you know, if he just looks like Fu Manchu, and you know, then of course maybe it's a problem to people. But if he is just an Asian villain, why not? Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm already envisioning banned in China, banned in China. <laughs> uh, uh, probably, but that's because China is just really sensitive. Yeah, <clears throat> unless they have some uh, some stake in it. Okay. Well, let's let's, let's let's talk. Let's go back to the Udine. Uh, I guess the most important question for 
for our discussion on today is uh, they have Pizza Hut there. No, but the pizza there is really awesome. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, um, fun story, if you don't mind my sharing. Sure. Uh, actually, I don't eat pizza there because what happens is um, uh, I, I eat with the staff and, you know, we get really nice food. Um, it's really for the region. We get lots of uh, asparagus and uh, local hams and cheeses. And, you know, it's, it's really great. You can't complain. And, you know, but yet yeah, pizza because, you know, pizza is not really the food they feel represents them, I think, you know, but you can buy pizza everywhere you go. It's just that I'm always eating with, with staff, so I, I don't usually get it. But there was one evening where I did get pizza. Um, actually, I ended up walking around Udine at like 4.30 in the morning, like on a Friday night, um, just because, you know, I was tired, and but I couldn't sleep. And, and actually, it's really nice to walk in Udine because, you know, the streets are very quiet and clean and and you just feel safe and there's, there's no issue. And so I was just wandering around and I don't know why I wanted to like get like a drink or something. So I walked into like the only pizza place I knew that was open. And, um, I recognized a guy sitting there, uh, a friend, and he was with some, some other locals who were all fans of the fest. And, uh, I recognized some of them, but I didn't really know them. Yeah. And so, you know, I just said hi to my friend and said, how you doing? And, uh, they bought me pizza and drinks just because I was their guest. Hmm. So that's how I had my pizza this year. Nice. And, uh, but, you know, the reason I bring that story up is it's just, it's that idea, you know, and, you know, when we sat there, they just wanted to talk about Asian films, you know, and they wanted to talk about the films we saw this year and last year and what they liked about them. And, uh, you know, it was really gratifying. Just, you know, it's just, it's just a moment. It's not like a big deal, but uh, it was, it was nice. It was one of those things where it made me realize why I really like this fest, you know, because I, I could do that. You know, these are people who recognize me and I recognize them because we see each other around the fest, but we don't really know each other. But you, know, you, get, you get the chance to sit down and, you know, they say, try this pizza. You'll thank us. And, um, and then we get to talk about all the films and what I liked and what I helped select. And, and uh, you know, that was one of the little experiences I had there that made me really happy with my experience in Udine this year. And actually, it all came about because I was, like, kind of restless. So I walked around the, the, the city in the middle of the night. Mm. So... Um, Completely not really. Well, it is film related in a way, but it tells you about the fest. It just tells you about what it's like to be there for the fest. And you were telling me before too that um, the fest is is really very friendly for um, schools and academic programs and and teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I met uh, uh, an old uh, a guy, um, an old friend uh, who came to Hong Kong. I met him. He came from uh, Coventry East. Asian Film Society. I'm going to get the acronym wrong, and I apologize to all of you. But, um, you know, uh, they came by, and um, the accommodation was free for them. They got to attend the fest, um, and uh, they uh, got to interview. And this is like a school organization. You know, this, this isn't variety, okay? Yeah. They get, to, they get their opportunity to interview Chapman Oh, so, um, uh, the directors of the Gallants, Derek Kwok and Clement Chang, um, Teddy Chen. Um, they get an opportunity to interview all the Korean directors, Cheng Hun, director of Secret Reunion. Um, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, it's open to everyone. That access is there. You know, it's, it's not as closed off as like other things are. It's, like, it's, it's really easy. And, you know, people do it just because they like to talk about films. I, I would recommend it to anyone who has the opportunity to go. Admittedly, I'm a little lucky. I get to go to the staff person. So 
I get taken care of in many ways. I don't have to like deal with my meals, which is a huge issue for me. <laughs> um, if I if I had the money to go, I would go anyway. Kevin, do you think you'll you'll ever make it out there? I hope so. I mean, last year I got a got my first mention the festival. I was in a special thanks in the pamphlet. So we'll see. Maybe in a few years I'll I'll get the money and and get to get rid of my enough of my responsibility to to drop by next year. We'll see. So I think that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Um, next time, we should be talking, coming back to talk about Robin Hood and the Pang Ho Chung film uh, Dream Home, provided I can uh, make it through the screening without tossing my cookies. Um, You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Yeah. I'll warn you when everyone dies. <laughs> and I'll try and warn you before I hurl in your lap. <laughs> You can sit next to someone else. Yeah, I, I have to save the empty seat for, for that. <laughs> Kevin's gonna be sitting in. I'll use that as the uh, as my target. Someone uh, got a KFC bucket in my place. Yeah, I'm suddenly reminded of the old uh, Monty Python movie. What was it uh, Meaning of Life? Meaning of life. Uh, bring me a bucket. Just a, minute. <laughs> Just a little you know, mint. I have, to, oh. <laughs> I have to say, when I saw it in Une, Dream Home, mm -hmm. I was so oversight about how grisly it was going to be that wasn't that bad yeah. <laughs> bit of a letdown personally speaking huh bit of a letdown i mean like huh a bit of a letdown well i mean i just picked myself up so much it's like oh it's going to be bad you know and uh, you know I, I even said it to to like tango chuck <laughs> like oh i'm 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 you know i'm, I'm really looking forward to your film i'm not going to eat dinner <laughs> it wasn't that bad i mean in terms of i didn't i didn't uh I, I was I was I expected it was going to be like really 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 just over the top and like you know like skulls flying and crazy things like that. And, it was like that. <laughs> so, and it's it's not really torture porn either. So if you're against torture porn, there's not there's there's really very little of that you know slow agonizing uh, you know pain. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's uh, it's something else. You can talk about it next week. Yeah. All right, so, well, uh, before we sign off, um, Ross, uh, thanks again for joining us tonight. Um, do you have any, where can people find out more about you and your work and some of your writing? Um, hopefully nowhere. But um, <laughs> uh, you can find out more about me at uh, lovehkfilm.com. It's my uh, website where I review Hong Kong movies, usually one or two weeks after they come out. Uh, Kevin writes for lovehkfilm.com, too. Um, and uh, that's it's pretty much it. I'm also on Twitter, but you know you can go to the site and find that. And I'm all over the place. Okay. And Kevin, if people want to keep in touch with you, um, they can find you on Twitter at yes at uh www.twitter.com slash the golden rock. That's one word, the golden rock. All right. And as always, um, if you'd like to keep up with uh, what we're doing or what we're seeing, you can always check in at our website. That's www.concast.com. So until next time, uh, on behalf of our guest, Ross, and 
Kevin and myself, we will wish you good viewing and we will see you next time. See you next time. Happy birthday, Allison. Uh, yeah, happy birthday, Allison. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Yeah. Happy birthday, Allison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have warned us. Yeah. I'm very late oh. on the uptake. <laughs> oh, we could export Donnie. Oh. I don't know. I think I. I, I you want to deport Donnie. <laughs> <laughs> you, do not, you do not ship Donnie. Donnie ships the country to you. No, well, last I checked, North Korea wasn't really making movies. So, yeah. well, the movies they they make, from what I've heard, star Kim Jong Il in compromising positions. I don't know if we'd want to watch those. Well, hell, I pay to watch those. Oh, <laughs> well, you're gonna watch that alone then. I, I enjoy it, but I I imagine many people just would not be able to take it. It's kind of um, like really good cosplay. <laughs> Pretty much, and that's a good way of putting it.